I think that when you begin sending work out into the world, I think you have probably realistically three sentences, maybe, to get somebody's attention, and definitely no more than that. Welcome to Story Geometry. I'm your host, Ben Hess. This is the podcast about the craft and community of writing with insights from leading published authors of our day. Like award-winning writer and teacher, that's Pam Houston. And this is episode eight, Filling Your Toolbox. We're going to discuss some foundational tools so that your work gets read past the three-sentence mark. As you may know, I've partnered with literary nonprofit Writing by Writers. They're at writingxwriters.org on this Story Geometry podcast episode and all the ones prior. They programmed an amazing series of 2016 literary workshops, adventures, and conferences, including their third annual generative workshop in Boulder, Colorado, April 8th through 10th. Whether a new student or alumni, save $100 off tuition by using code GEOMETRY. But you must register before December 31st, so hit pause and sign up now. Over the next few minutes, you'll hear from two-time National Endowment for the Arts fellow and National Book Award winner for poetry, Mark Doty, novelist, memoirist, Lydia Yuknovich, novelist, musician, and poet, Greg Glazner, and more from the award-winning Pam Houston. So dust off that empty metal toolbox that's been buried in the garage and get ready to add some key pieces, all when our show continues. How did you settle on poetry as your form? Wasn't a choice. Um, <laughs> I was uh, first writing, always reading something, and, and I liked writing when I was very young. In high school, I was keeping a journal, not of uh, what happened to me, because I was always bored by writing a diary, but uh, of images, ideas, dreams, little sketches. Mark Doty and I chatted at dusk on a small hill overlooking Tamales Bay in Marin County, California. He won the 2008 National Book Award in Poetry for Fire to Fire, New and Selected Poems. And in addition to several books of poetry, he has written three memoirs, including a craft book, The Art of Description, World into Word. And I stumbled upon some poems by William Blake and by Federico Garcia Lorca. And what I loved about them was the way that there was a, a depth charge to the language. They were often very short, rather mysterious poems which said more than they said. Full disclosure, I've not read either Blake or Lorca or much poetry for that matter. Regardless, tool number one, find, cultivate, and study your literary inspiration. They somehow conveyed things that the denotative meanings of the words alone could not account for. Something about music, something about the magic of imagery, something elusive. I love that. I wanted to make something like that. Do you find, when you're working on a new piece, is poetry inherently musical? Is it inherently lyrical? Or, or do you have to find rhythm and beat and meter once you have more words on page? I am a person who tends to begin with the visual, with an image that strikes me, something I want to describe. For me, description comes first, but it's very closely allied to a mode of speaking that might feel casual or offhand. It might feel heightened and elevated. It might feel like short lines that want to highlight a small unit of language or like some more extended movement where words tumble over themselves. And so it comes about really through reading musical poets that one loves. You know, you drink in Marlowe and drink in Keats, drink in Shakespeare, and the music starts uh, coming out through your fingers if you're lucky. Okay, so Mark's got Blake, Garcia, Marlowe, Keats, and Shakespeare in his toolbox. 
But just a few minutes later on in our chat, he said, You know, if you find a poet you love, say you completely adore a Lucille Clifton poem, the thing for you to do is go and read as much Lucille Clifton as you can and just roll in that influence like a dog rolling in a good smell. You know, take it in. <laughs> and then you will keep what's in that that um, is like you, that, that you need for your work, and gradually let go of the rest. And of course, this applies equally to creative nonfiction, fiction, essays, memoir, whatever form of the craft you're pursuing. I've come to realize and believe it's our duty to study the masters who have come before, to roll around in their work, as Mark says, and then see how it permeates our poetry or prose. There was a period in my life when I was hugely influenced by John Ashbery, which is something that you probably wouldn't expect from my poems. But his syntax, the, the kind of cool beauty of those poems, the way they move from description to meditation was very important to me. And I let myself just do that for a while until the parts of that influence that weren't really mine fell away. However, now, if, I, if it were up to me to say what everybody should read, <laughs> I'd send everybody to Keats, I'd send everybody to D.H. Lawrence, I'd send everyone to Hart Crane, to Robert Lowell and Elizabeth Bishop, to James Merrill. I was an actor years ago, so the inspiration layer in my toolbox includes a wide range, Shakespeare, to Oscar Wilde, to Edgar Allan Poe, to Arthur Miller, to Tom Wolfe, and Stephen King. And I'm thrilled to report this layer is only getting deeper and richer with every published author and aspiring writer I get a chance to interview. I should start by saying I'm a form junkie. Okay. I mean, I am one of those writers who is more interested in form than content. This is Lydia Yuknovich, whose most recent novel is The Haunting, Lyrical, The Small Backs of Children. Her memoir, or anti-memoir as she calls it, The Chronology of Water, was a finalist, Penn Center USA Creative Nonfiction Award, and named a Best Book of the Year by The Oregonian. Lydia and I chatted outside on a Saturday night as Writing by Writers students filed past, heading into an upcoming reading. I asked her about the unique structure of Small Box of Children. I knew there would be formal play. I didn't arrange ahead of time the specific formal moves I made. Um, The namelessness came intuitively as an experiment for a certain number of pages. Lydia named her characters for the art they create, the filmmaker, the photographer, instead of conventional names. And once I saw it moving in the story and on the pages, it felt more and more right to not ever make a main character because that's not the kind of story I wanted to tell. And our proper names are our first indicators of individuality. And so it was an easy way to get rid of main character It was an easy way to take the focus off the single individual. So our second tool is form and structure. What fascinates me is how these are so connected to the genre we choose to write and how play and experimentation in a less familiar form can help our writing across the board. For example... With my prose writers in graduate school, I I have them write formal poems all the time. This is Pam Houston, whose award-winning novel, Contents May Have Shifted, is a 12 by 12 masterful tapestry of 144 travel-themed vignettes. Pam's comments are after a day of kayaking this fall on Writing by Writer's inaugural literary adventure in the San Juan Islands. She was recorded by co-founder and writer Karen Nelson. I believe that form is another way to do an end around your analytical brain. It's a way to focus on something other than the aboutness, and often really great things emerge. I mean, contents may have shifted, People would ask me 
three years in, what's the story about? I said, I have no idea. There's 12 sets of 12. <laughs> like, I would describe it as a form. You know, I would describe it formally because I really didn't know what it was about. Physical form is very, very important. Like, I think about stories as Rubik's cubes. I think about them as slinkies. I think about them as spirograph flowers. I think about them as geometric shapes. I always feel like I'm happier if I know the size of the boxes I'm trying to fill, and then I can fill them. That's my version of an outline. That's my version of safe space. And here's more from Lydia Yuknovich talking about the small backs of children. I put it in motion just to see, but then after a certain number of pages, it became clear to me that was the right pattern for the kind of story I wanted to tell, a choral story, and a story that could only resolve if pieces came together. And so losing the names was a very strong, easy, anyone in the world could look at it and go, look, the names are missing, and think at least a thought, if not exactly what I was aiming for. Right, right. I was reading an interview that you gave a while ago. I might have lied. (laughs) (laughs) I want to test that. Hear your own words back to you and see if you had any different perspective. I might. Okay. Inside the relationship between a writer and a reader, a fiercely passionate world may arise. Oh, no, I still agree with that. I'm of the opinion that books should happen to you, that you should feel like an event occurred, you know, like an event horizon. And to me, those are the best books, the literature books that change your life. And I know there are books that are just entertainment or give you escapism Mm -hmm. or you're reading them because they're a sign. But from my point of view, if a book happens to you, it means it changed your DNA somehow and you live differently. And so that thing I said between a reader and a writer, I'm talking about that space between us where you feel like something happened instead of just, I read some words and that was cool. Um, So I guess I still believe that. That one I agree with. Okay. With two tools, inspiration and form and structure identified and several more to come, you're listening to episode eight of Story Geometry, Filling Your Toolbox. Today's show is brought to you by our inaugural sponsor, Spoken Word Inc., the independent audiobook publisher. Spoken Word will produce your audiobook and make it available on channels like Audible, Amazon, iTunes, Scribe, and more. Audiobooks like the critically acclaimed Bad Sex by Clancy Martin or F-250 by Bud Smith. With Spoken Word Inc., authors receive the highest share of royalties and reach a brave new world of readers, writers, and listeners. Go to SpokenWordInc.com and get 25% off any audiobook purchase when you enter the offer code STORYGEO. Spoken Word, Inc., your story, your audiobook. Continuing what both Lydia and Pam said about form versus content, here's poet and novelist Greg Glazner, who also teaches in the creative writing program at University of California, Davis. I was curious about form in his completed but not yet published novel, Opening the World. When you had the kernels of the idea for the novel, how did they shape and form in prose versus poetry? Believe it or not, the, the first idea for the novel was form, that uh, I had decided that there were certain things that I didn't write about because I was writing in narrow columns down the page, and I, and I was interested in just opening it up and letting it, letting it say different kinds of things, you know, than I could or would in a poem. So it started with a whole different subject, you know? It was initially about physics, and it didn't turn out to be about that at all. It's about this character named Lynn, who, who coincidentally plays guitar and writes. Greg's description of form is a perfect segue to our third tool in the toolbox, the rhythm of language. It too 
started with the sounds of the sentences. <laughs> you know, when, once I was really onto it, I mean, I had a rough idea of some subject matter, but those sentences were incredibly important to me. The rhythms and the sounds and the voice qualities and all that stuff. As you've gone through this this publishing journey, have you had any pushback on that? Has that been an issue, do you think, to publication, or is it just uh, people are accepting it for what it is? You know, I haven't heard any explicit pushback on that question. If someone gave me pushback on it, I would listen to it. I think the pushback I'm getting is over the poetic quality of the language. It's a 400-page book, and it intentionally moves slowly so that we can savor where we are. And I think that is the exact polar opposite of what is wanted these days. I'm writing sonic, you know, rhythmical uh, sentences for a purpose. You know, either you slow down and diminish your numbers of page per minute, per, per hour that you're reading, or else there's nothing there for you, you know. Can you define how poetry and music live together, especially as a musician? This is really one of the most interesting questions to me about poetry. And for me personally, the way they, they live together is through through rhythm, through tone, in music, if you have a groove going, you, you have a background rhythm established. And then with a, with a guitar solo, you counterpoint off of the rhythm that already is, exists behind you. And then the notes themselves are, are akin to singing. And singing is akin to vowels. So each word has both a drum strike and a singing. The drum strike is the syllable and whether it's accented or not, if you're listening carefully, is how hard the drum strike happens. And the syllable, the vowel, is what you sing through. Each phrase is a little bit of a rhythm section or a little bit of a rhythm riff with singing in it. And so I am hearing, when I, when I write poems, I'm hearing a kind of background rhythm that varies, that breathes, but that is always there in my mind, and then I am counterpointing against that rhythm with the drum strikes and the singing of my solo. So to me, uh, a poem is primarily musical. If I can't hear how a poem sounds, I can't start. Language's rhythm and tempo can also inform so much about the emotional state of a character, or even guide the author toward choosing one point of view over another. Here's Pam Houston. I like the second person for a few very specific reasons. One reason is that I'm from New Jersey, and that's how people speak there. The second person is the official state language of New Jersey. It's, to my ear, a very American way to speak. It's a very American way to tell a story. It, it deflects responsibility the way we do here in America, and it's, it, it's inclusive in this kind of Jersey way that just makes a lot of sense to me. So you're sitting there and this guy comes up to you and he says, like, that's, that's how you tell a story where I come from. It's in the second person. I also love about the second person that it's, it's the first person with a little wash of shame over it. It's like, I'm a little bit ashamed to say I, so I'm going to say you. I like that deflection. It's like shame without having to say you're ashamed. I like that a lot. I like the rhythms it sets up in sentences. It sets up entirely different rhythms and cadences in the sentences, and I, I like that a great deal. I've not spent much time in Jersey, but at least now I'm prepared to visit. I know their language. Mark Doty's craft book, The Art of Description, is a collection of four essays. And when I ask about its origins, 
The first thing Mark said is... To my mind, the idea of description is not just about rendering the surface of perception. It's about how is perception translated into language? How do we render the world as we know it into something that can evoke for the reader, that can create an experience for the reader. It's very mysterious to me because words are um, abstract, they are common property, they are in some funny way ordinary, and they're certainly bloodless, right? How do you make physical reality out of them? And when you do so, you are not simply, if you're doing good description, and you're not just you know, doing sort of scientific description or measurements, then you're also revealing how you feel about something and what's important to you and what you describe. So I think it's been an endlessly fascinating subject. And it seems that people are using it, not poets, but creative nonfiction writers or fiction writers. If description is description, and if you are doing a good job of representing your own perceptions, if you're evoking those for the reader, what an asset that is to your fiction or to your nonfiction. Absolutely. Probably every writer should spend a little time studying poetry or writing poetry just simply for the experience of focusing on language as a thing in itself. For the prose writer, language too often, you know, sort of disappears as a value. It, it, we think we want it to be transparent, or uh-huh. I don't want the language to call attention to itself. Right. But in fact, language is not transparent. <laughs> language ha- has weight and shape and meaning. And so it's very useful to spend time looking at it. I had the fortune of, of doing some Shakespeare as an actor back in college days, d- days gone by. But the musicality of that language, you know, whether it's iambic pentameter or some of the, the, the famous monologues, when looking at the sonnets and hearing the sonnets read, yes. I, I admittedly have been intimidated by poetry, and yet Shakespeare's sonnets gave a little bit of a, a window in. First of all, I, just was, I think it's really important what you said about hearing the poem read. And yes, reading aloud is number four in the toolbox. Reading aloud yourself, because two things happen when you do that. One is that you start inhabiting the music of the poem physically. You feel it in the muscles of your jaws and you move your yeah, tongue and yeah. it, it, it influences your breathing. And that is a way to get much closer to the active life of a poem. The other thing that happens is when a poem is read aloud, you understand that it's an address. Someone is speaking to someone else. Mm-hmm. And that's very different than something sitting uh, flatly on the page as an object of study, right? If Shakespeare is trying to persuade someone or he's trying to charm or flatter, if he's trying to convince a listener that time has no power over his love or his love's beauty or his writing, then uh, that's a very different thing when it's spoken, it's argued. So that address is something that really is crucial to the life of poetry. So we've dusted off our toolbox and added four things, inspiration, form and structure, the rhythm of language, and reading your drafts aloud. With those tools in mind, we're going to close today's episode a little differently. Here's an assignment from Pam Houston. The story that I'm going to ask you to write is what's called an abecedarian. It's just a story of 26 lines, and the first sentence starts with an A, and the second sentence starts with a B, and the third sentence starts with a C. It's just a C word, B word, and A word. The other rules are... One of your 26 sentences has to be one word long, and another one of your 26 sentences has to be 50 words long, and you can substitute for X or Z, but not both. You can go forward through the alphabet or backwards, but you have to go in order. So you can start with Z or you can start with A. Send your submissions by January 15th to hello at storygeometry.org. We'd love to see what you come up with and maybe even post them on our Facebook page and site. We'll continue to add more to our toolbox in the new year. 
This concludes our inaugural season one of Story Geometry. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining me on this podcast storytelling journey. We're taking a holiday hiatus. And on a side note, I'm on the move, leaving the San Francisco Bay Area after many years for sun and palm trees and maybe some warm water down to Los Angeles. So look for Story Geometry's Season 2 kickoff in February 2016, complete with more words of wisdom on the craft and community of writing. Thanks so much for listening to Episode 8, Filling Your Toolbox. I'm your host and editor, at Ben Hess on Twitter and Instagram. Warm thanks to Mark Doty, Lydia Yuknovich, Greg Glazner, and Pam Houston for sharing their insights and ideas on building your writing toolbox. Don't forget to visit today's sponsor, SpokenWordInc.com. To kick off the new year with an audiobook, use offer code STORYGEO for 25% off. Our theme music is from Mark Hodgkin, and additional tracks are from Greg Glazner's band, The Responders. As always, be sure to rate and review Story Geometry on iTunes, send feedback via storygeometry.org, and sign up for future Writing by Writers events and conferences at writingxwriters.org. Don't forget to use that promo code geometry before December 31st. Thanks so much for listening, and have a happy new year. Mm-hmm.